I think it's fair to say that my partner Reed Martin and I wrote the book on the history of comedy when we literally wrote the play, The Complete History of Comedy Abridged. But it's probably more accurate to say that my guest this week, the author Trav S.D., has really written the book on the history of comedy because he literally wrote, no applause, just throw money, the book that made vaudeville famous. It's, is that is that fair to say? Are you the, the vaudeville's leading historian? Um. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, number 655, History of Vaudeville. To paraphrase Ken Burns in every single one of his documentaries, no matter the topic, the story of vaudeville is the story of America. And as we head into the 4th of July holiday weekend, it seems like the perfect time to talk with performer and author Trav S.D. about his fun and highly readable book, No Applause, Just Throw Money, the book that made vaudeville famous. We began our conversation with clarity about where Trav falls on the food chain of vaudeville historians. There's a gentleman named Frank Cullen who I'll, I'll always cede uh, primacy to. Uh, he founded something called the American uh, American Vaudeville Museum, I think, in Boston, and he wrote a great two-volume encyclopedia. He's more encyclopedic about it. Um, but I think uh, mine mine's might be the more sort of populist read. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Uh, the more, uh, you know, it's more of a readable book as opposed to a uh, uh, a reference book, if you will. And you come to you come to writing about vaudeville as a, as also a performer of vaudeville. How did you get interested in vaudeville to begin with? Well, uh, as a kid, I was really into TV variety shows. So I actually love all kinds of variety theater, you know. Um, the category that includes circus and burlesque and vaudeville and cabaret and uh, all sorts of crazy forms like the medicine show, which has right. gone by and in some ways hasn't gone by, if you think about it. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you mean uh, you mean carnies and hucksters on the national totally stage? Totally right. That's yes. you know, in some ways, it kind of dominates American life, and it's all a medicine show nowadays. Right, but. Um, uh, so there's that. I'm always, and I, you know, I studied theater. I went to a conservatory in Providence uh, called the Trinity Rep Conservatory, sure. where I studied to act and write plays. And so I, I've always done that. Uh, but um, maybe 25 years ago or so, I worked at Big Apple Circus in the back office uh, and spent a lot of time uh, just kind of immersed in the circus form. And uh, realized that really n- not much was being done about vaudeville. And there still isn't, actually. There's a huge swelling burlesque scene and a huge sideshow scene. But uh, not so much of uh, vaudeville, per se. Uh, so I started doing shows in the mid-'90s and, uh, and still do them uh, in different ways, shapes, and forms. Uh, 
and uh, that's kind of how it came about. Uh, when we... I wasn't really a historian of it. I, you know, I tried to recreate TV variety, which is what I knew best, and only and only researched it retroactively after I was already doing it. When we finally performed in New York with the Complete History of America abridged at Lincoln Center, Stephen Holden gave us this Valentine review in the New York Times, and he, he called what we do intellectual vaudeville, uh, which I loved, yeah. which it yeah. implied to me and anybody who gets that, you know, it's smart, but it's funny and silly. Does that, is that a, a good distinction for you? Does that seem oxymoronic or, or even redundant? Well, you know, the thing about, the thing about vaudeville is, uh, by definition, it's about variety. So for me, right. an ideal vaudeville show would have, uh, might include uh, something that you would think of as highbrow, whether it be, it could be opera or ballet or just a very smart monologist or a playwright, um, ranging from that to just, you know, uh, balls to the walls, uh, slapstick comedy that has no intellectual component at all. Um, it's funny you mentioned you, you, when you said that the first bell that rang for me was a poet named Rachel Lindsay, uh, who in the early 20th century, uh, had, you know, tr tried to do something that he called intellectual vaudeville. He would perform his poems, um, uh, designed for mass audiences, but, uh, he was the only one. There was no movement about it. You know, it was just what he called his thing. <laughs> yes, I'm not, I'm not sure yeah. it would have occurred to me to use that phrase, and, and I'm not sure I would, have, I would have had the balls to use it, to apply it myself. Um, we have a lot of English fans and listeners to this podcast. How does vaudeville differ from musical? I sort of equate them, but I'm not sure that's really right. Yeah, and we, particularly in the early days of American vaudeville, they were much more similar. Uh, and probably throughout vaudeville's history, the most popular sort of act, the kind of act that um, earned the biggest money and was most popular with fans were what they called singing singles, especially uh, female singers, believe it or not. They were the biggest stars in vaudeville. And I think that kind of had its, its counterpart in Music Hall, uh, although the chairman in Music Hall, uh, what they called the chairman, which was the master of ceremonies, was usually male. But um, there were a few differences uh, in in Music Hall. Music Hall came out of taverns, like literally, uh, and so drinking and song were always very much a part of that, and the audience would sing along with the chairman and the various acts. Um, and the what gave vaudeville it's sort of uh, its distinctive qualities in the early 20th century was that the entrepreneurs who were producing it were uh, kind of puritanical, you know? Mm. So they took it out of saloons, took the, that component out of it. Um, and then I think because, just because America being America, it ended up being this sort of mashup of everything going on, you know? So there's circus acts would come into it, and um, little, not so much burlesque because vaudeville is cleaner, but um, different other variety forms. Obviously, the minstrel show and uh, stuff like that would all sort of get mashed into one. And the legit theater and opera, as I said. Whereas music hall um, concentrated much more on um, on the songs, 
you know, was much, and hence the name, musical. Right. Uh, but there was always a sort of musical strain in vaudeville as well. And I think of vaudeville as being, uh, if not exclusively, largely comic. Is that, is that an overstatement? Uh, it's, I would call that absolutely an overstatement. Okay. Um, <laughs> vaudeville, uh, I mean, it's the, I think maybe nowadays we use the term that way, but I think, um, one interesting thing that I feel has happened in popular culture is we've, uh, to a large extent, maybe since the mid 20th century, lost a quality of sentimentality that used to be a huge part of the vaudeville experience. Um, uh, you know, songs about your dead mother uh, <laughs> or your lost law. Lo- you know, there was a lot of weeping that would go on. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, my Yiddish mama. Uh, right. Um, was the Yiddish song that was sung by a lot of singers like Sophie Tucker and others. So there was there's that component, but also a major strain in vaudeville that seems to have been forgotten is that one act plays like melodramas in big time vaudeville would also be uh, on the bill. And uh, usually they'd be dramatic, you know, sort of a pocket version of uh, a reduced version, if you will, (laughs) Um, uh, of, uh, of what we think of as like a Chekhov play, you know, or an Ibsen play, but in 10 minutes. So it would be with the same vaudeville quality of slam, bam, uh, wow finish kind of thing, but it would only happen in 10 minutes. I've seen a couple of old films, um, of Vitagraphs or whatever, where they, where, um, some of those are presented, uh, and recorded. And, uh, it's pretty funny because it moves so quickly. It's just kind of ridiculous where you get to the, usually it's going to be like a suicide or something, right? It, Cause that's about the biggest finish you can have or a murder or something, but the circumstances are so rapid and it's it's so abbreviated that the kind of unintentionally comic to us now but yeah but again so drama drama was totally part of the package back then Francis Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. And you're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Podcast. What? Yes. Merrily and yay verily, motherfucker. Where can you RSC the RSC? You can see Reduced Shakespeare in your own home by owning your very own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, written by me and Reed Martin and illustrated by the marvelous Jenny Mazels. It's on sale worldwide, and you can find links to both Amazon and independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. We have two performances left of our spring and summer of 2019 tour of the complete works of William Shakespeare abridged revised in Lakeside, Ohio on July 18th and in Lake Placid, New York on August 10th. We'll have more performance dates starting this fall of 2019, both in the U.S. and in other places, and we'll announce those dates just as soon as we can. As always, the very best way to stay up to date about all of our worldwide performance dates is to sign up for the Reduced Reader, our email newsletter. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com and click on the link to subscribe and check out our touring page for specific box office, venue, and ticket information. Now back to my conversation with Trav S.D., the author of No Applause, Just Throw Money, the book that made vaudeville famous, and Chain of Fools, silent comedy and its legacies from Nickelodeon's to YouTube. 
Well, it's interesting you talk about um, film, those early films, because you've you've written about silent com comedies films as well, haven't you? Yeah, my, actually, my second my second book uh, is called Chain of Fools, and that's about uh, slapstick comedy in the movies and um, and sense. Uh, you know, some some uh, slapstick slapstick comedians. I don't know why that's a tongue twister. <laughs> in the early days of television, uh, a lot of variety show personalities like Jackie Gleason or Red Skelton would have uh, silent comedy characters, which they would do in the context of their show. So um, there are ways in which the silent comedy out, outlived or outlasted um, silent comedy movies per se, but got perpetuated on TV. That's fascinating to me. I'm going to have to read Train of Fools now, too, because silent film comedy is how <laughs> I sort of got my interest going in comedy. General, generally, my dad would bring home Blackhawk, or order Blackhawk films. Remember Blackhawk Wow. Films? On Super 8, and we'd watch all these great <laughs> silent comedies, Buster Keaton, uh, uh, obviously Charlie Chaplin, Laurel and Hardy. Um, and then, and then my big favorites as a, as a teenager were Abbott and Costello, well, not even like 10 years old, Abbott and Costello and the Marx Brothers. Yeah. I, um, I'm one thing that saddens me about the younger generation of kids, although they, they do lots do discover stuff through the internet, but it's much more by happenstance. They, they don't have that narrow sort of platform that we used to have in, you tune in the TV and you only had three channels or so and so uh, a lot of us would get exposed to stuff just because and the same stuff just because uh obviously there there was nothing else to watch <laughs> so a lot of us learned about the marx brothers and and abbott and costello and the three stooges and others that way whereas it's the the odds that that's going to happen to a young person now are much smaller although some do they take an interest in it and they find out about it but Oh my gosh! Well, I was—I two years ago I was teaching college out in Oregon, and uh, some of these kids had never heard of Monty Python, and I just said, "I, I need uh, to have a conversation no. with your parents," because <laughs> I need to have a drink with your parents. <laughs> right. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I got a wake-up call, a similar one, where where none of the kids I was talking to in a college class, and this was on—it was on, you know, it was of. of uh, graduate students whose whose thing was women in theater and and uh, film uh, hadn't heard of Mae West, uh. and that was like a wake up call. Wow, if you haven't heard of Mae West, uh, times have really changed. Well, and this is one of the great things about your Twitter feed, uh, which I heartily recommend that everybody who listens to follow you, <laughs> because it feels like every day you have at least several tweets that are articles about famous actors, famous comedians, famous performers, um, that are brief essays that might link to longer essays or their excerpts from your books or something. It's fascinating stuff, and uh, <laughs> it's, it's great Thank that you. you kind of put that out there. <laughs> I'm, I'm not as superhuman as that may seem. Um, on a daily basis, I probably turn out one or a couple of essays. A lot of them, uh, a lot of the ones I circulate are older ones that I've done uh, over the past ten years or so. Um, and I usually do them on birthdays, you know. Right. So uh, 
it's interesting sometimes. Sometimes several funny, like I think Lou Costello and Groucho Marx have the same birthday, for example. <laughs> and then you wonder about the stars, about the astrology of when they were born. That's amazing. So on your tombstone, like, will it say, <laughs> in the words of the great Chuckles the Clown, a little song, a little dance, a little seltzer down your pants? <laughs> I'll take that. When I was a kid, I used to joke that I really, I would, I wanted a sort of funhouse mausoleum so that when you went in the door, you'd slide down a slide and there'd be, you know, sort of laughing, uh, dark ride, uh, Coney Island, cackling clown faces and things, which I guess, provided there are mourners, maybe there won't be any, uh, but maybe they wouldn't appreciate that so much. But I do. I like. <laughs> I have a perverse idea that my my spirit would like to have a laugh at their expense. <laughs> I can think of no better way to go. And whether they're mourners or celebrants, at least they'll be butts in seats. <laughs> yeah, good. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. For more information about Trav's writings and performances, visit his blog, Travelanche, at travsd.wordpress.com and follow him on Twitter, at TravSD. Then send us your silent comedy influences via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook, at RSC Podcast, on Instagram, at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter, at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener. Thanks as always to solo double act Matthew Croak, web services by Ginger Power Limited, music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout out this week goes to Kevin Birch. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Francis Callier and Angela V. Shelton, the fabulous double act also known as Frangela. Follow them on Twitter at Frangela and catch them next week on the July 9th premiere of Bring the Funny on NBC. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. I'm Austin Titchener, 655, 1965ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. And now I leave you with this traditional Independence Day greeting from our British web dude, Davy Naylor. Happy 4th of July, you traitorous bastards. <laughs> this podcast is a production of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less.